Hello, welcome to Hollywood 2.0. Here is Peter Katz and my co-host Rich Silverman. Hello everybody. Yes, I am back after a pretty extensive hiatus. I've actually been out in the field and down in the trenches. Lo and behold, writing and producing a transmedia project called Go Berserk. It leads up to a new series, a new young adult series from author Michael Grant, who is probably best known for his work co-writing the Animorphs with his wife during the 1990s, and he's got a series out in the New York Times bestsellers list right now called Gone. We have a special guest at Hollywood 2.0, Ava Sieve, co-author of The Curse of the Mogul. It's an interesting book that shows examples of the smart, and not so smart ways to run a media company. Well, um, I am a uh, media consultant, and I um, worked as a general manager in a number of smaller media companies um, for quite a few years. And uh, when the dot-com uh, thing started in, in the late 1990s, I formed a company with four other women to do consulting because we, we figured finally that people actually appreciated our talents of understanding how to run a business and also understand what content uh, is needed to run a business. Before this happened, you have to understand that this is a very underpaid and underappreciated talent. So I started this media company and my uh, husband, who happened to be a professor at Columbia Business School and used to be at uh, Harvard Business School, used to use the companies I worked for or some of the companies that I uh, consulted for as examples of what not to do. And um, he would, of course, uh, uh, not not say the name of the company or he would disguise them, but it was really annoying because I was busy trying to make these companies work, and he thought that it was really hilarious that uh, media companies are so badly run. And so at some point in our marriage, I said, you know, it would be nice, honey, if you tried to help me figure out how to do this, not how not to do this. And as we sort of proceeded, we've been married for quite a long time, um, we decided to do a course that was based on some of uh, Bruce Greenwald's ideas, who's one of the co-authors, um, uh, and my husband, uh, on, on competition and why media was so difficult. And so we ended up teaching a class for quite a few years. And um, at some point, Jonathan Nee, who's the third co-author, joined the course. And um, from teaching that class for five years, that's where the book came from. So it was really based on a lot of thinking uh, about media companies, um, based on my background. And also we had a lot of guest speakers, we did casework, we did a lot of uh, very good um, research in, in numbers, which are a lot of the, that is in the book. And so that's, that's, that's where the idea came from. So it was actually, you know, it was a, a, an eight-year overnight success. And before we go on, I think it would be useful for our listeners if you could give sort of the uh, one-paragraph elevator pitch uh, of the central thesis of the book. Well, um, it's based on a book called Competition Demystified, and it is about competitive advantage, and if there is, in fact, a way to get competitive advantage in the media business. Um, and there's actually a technical ways to determine whether or not there are competitive advantages having to do with uh, profits and, and steady market share and that sort of thing. Um, but that is really the basis of the book, which is the, the bottom line is it's almost impossible for media companies to have competitive advantage because most media companies um, are very are in a very competitive environment where anyone anyone can really either launch a website or make a movie or do anything that they feel like doing and enter into the into the business. The iconic example of of that would be the um, 
the music business. Whereas it used to be, you know, 20 years ago, that the music labels had competitive advantage because they controlled the marketing and the distribution of music. But as that disappeared, in fact, uh, most of the music labels don't have any competitive advantage, and it's just really crazy difficult to, to actually make a profit in that business. So that's the, the major feature of it, and we go through all the different verticals in media, a lot of them, you know, uh, books, movies, TV, cable, telecom, uh, and, and uh, you know, business-to-business type businesses, consumer businesses, and talk about why those particular companies that are, that are competing in these businesses do or do not make money and how they make money and if anyone has a competitive advantage. With it being a critical look at the industry, what kind of feedback do you receive from executives? Well, you know, you would think that we would have figured out that if we call a book, you know, The Curse of the Mogul, What's Wrong with the World's Leading Media Companies, uh, we wouldn't get a whole lot of work from it, <laughs> from media companies. And it turns out that we get a lot of positive feedback. It certainly is a validation. People think you're smart. Uh, there's a lot of information in there. And, uh, but but we, we see that, you know, it's not that I'm getting a lot of consulting work out of it, to be honest. It's kind of just the same as usual. However... The, um, the way that we think about media companies has really entered into the lexicon. I mean, it is goes without saying that, that there's hard to, it's hard to make a competitive advantage. And people are very um, careful about, you know, maintaining that they have a competitive advantage given kind of what the, what the intelligence is out there. So I think it has affected um, the businesses uh, a fair amount, but, you know, how much, I don't know. We, when we brought out the paperback edition uh, about six months ago, um, Jonathan Nee wrote a, a postscript um, about the NBC Universal deal and how, in in a lot of ways, that went against you know all of the kind of uh, you know warnings we had with this gigantic um, um, you know M and A, which was we, we also. Uh, think that uh, most most of these cross vertical M and A uh, activities make no sense at all for a variety of reasons. Now they went ahead and they did that. Obviously, they didn't call us up and ask us what we thought, but um, but there are some indications that the discussion around NBC Universal Comcast deal really uh, took on board the the work that we had done on that book. So that was pretty gratifying, I have to say. What do and, you think about that deal? Is well, it- I mean, it's it's. You know, it's the the uh, jury is out. Um, I, I think that um, the Comcast guys um, uh, obviously had been looking to get into the content production um, business for a while. You know, so one of their their um, earlier efforts had failed. Um, they didn't pay a ton of money for it, relatively speaking. But I, I just don't know. Um, you know, in the end, how it's going to work out. What they did do was in order to get their cable distribution business, you know, their cable network business to scale, they went ahead and they, they, they brought in all the NBC cable businesses. I mean, a logical way to solve that problem without going ahead and doing a merger would be to get rid of your not-to-scale cable uh, networks to somebody else and give it to somebody else, but they did the opposite thing. So I think that part of it, um, cable networks are very, very profitable, and they, and they do... Um, generally have some competitive advantage. I think that part of the business was, was great. I'm not a big expert on sort of broadcast and how that's going to play out. Obviously, it's, um, it's, uh, you know, it's not as profitable as it has been, and it'll probably sink 
uh, even further, but you know, depending on how they manage that process, uh, it, it's a good idea or a bad idea, I don't know. Now, a, a lot of the book is about mergers and acquisitions, and you talk about the, uh, you use the word stupidity of, of M&A, and yeah. how uh, companies over the past, I don't know how long this trend's been going on, maybe 20 years or so, but they've relied on the mergers and acquisitions to uh, sort of grow and to continue to grow. Right. Uh, I'd like to ask you uh, another specific, and Disney recently acquired Marvel. Is this a good idea, or is it a bad idea? Right. I mean, the acquisition of Marvel, Marvel makes Marvel, sorry about that. Acquisition of Marvel makes no sense from a financial standpoint, as far as we can tell. The major reason that um, the major uh, result when uh, a lot of this M and A takes place among um, media companies is that the top line grows, that that there's more revenue coming in. But typically, it, they can't improve the profit with the with this merger acquisition. In fact, lots of times they make it worse. Um, and that's really the reason that we're against M&A. It's, there's no um, uh, ways to, to have a, a cost synergy, which is, you know, to, to, to share costs or to eliminate some costs from one company to the other if, in fact, they're in completely different businesses so there's no cost that you share. Um, in the case of Marvel and Disney, they were in the, kind of in the same business, but, but not really. I mean, Marvel had gone ahead and... and uh, licensed all its properties to other people, not Disney. I mean, you know, for years and years and years in the future. And it it, it sort of doesn't, we don't understand why, in, in fact, they would have uh, spent the money they did for, for Marvel, because the actual assets that you think you could make hay with, you know, in, in Disney's distribution strength and all that, isn't going to be accessible to them through an M&A. I mean, there's lots and lots of ways that you can do a partnership with another media company, but you don't have to own them. And that's really, um, you know, the, the thing about M&A that we don't understand. I mean, movie companies do it all the time through syndication, where they're not, they don't buy each other, but they, they spread the risk and they, you know, and they also then spread the success, in fact, if, if it is successful. And that would be a, usually a, a much more profitable way to go ahead and, and work with another company rather than just buying them out. And Disney, Disney's been down this road in the past, and I know that they, they spent many years courting the, the Jim Henson company. Then they finally acquired the Muppets, and they didn't really seem to know how to exploit the, the intellectual property. I mean, there's a natural um, uh, span of control for creative properties. I mean, the, 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 the book talks about how content production really isn't, uh, you're not really able to make that to scale. There is only a certain amount of content production you can do to make really good content for these kind of consumer products, for these one-off consumer products. And um, the Henson Company produces, you know, one-of-a-kind, handcrafted movies and, and products like that. And that's something that probably you can't scale. The place you can scale things is in distribution, which is the aggregation uh, area, which is why it used to be that... Um, you know, music labels used to be so profitable, which and they're not anymore for a variety of reasons. But another example of aggregation, it, like we talked about with the um, uh, with NBC Universal and Comcast um, networks, cable networks, is that's really very very profitable. If you look at the numbers um, that let's say Kagan puts out, which has to do with with cash flow and that kind of thing, although it's not exactly you know operating profits, it's a good it's a good stand-in. It's just extraordinary how much money um, these uh, cable networks can uh, can make, and 
they can save money and be much more powerful when they aggregate themselves together. An example, when they're negotiating, let's say, with Time Warner Cable, you know, where they're trying to extract um, more money from the cable cha- the cable uh, operator or the, the person carrying the, you know, the, the pipe. I mean, obviously, when Comcast owns the cable networks and has its own pipe, they can't extract more money from themselves, right? <laughs> so, so, so that's that kind of uh, advantage disappears when they buy, uh, when the cable networks combine with the cable delivery system. Now, um, you mentioned um, moguls that are the good and bad. Which moguls do you really respect, and you feel they're they have the right mindset, and which ones do you think should buy your book and start <laughs> reading today? Well, listen. Most of the guys who we talk about started off being really smart guys with good companies, and they specialized in an area, and they made a lot of money in that area, and then they, they read their own press, and they decided that they could go ahead and, and use their genius to, uh, to go into other areas that they didn't really know very well. I mean, the, the idea of calling someone a mogul is usually a little bit of a, of a, dis, a dis to them, although we didn't always mean that. Um, the, the most interesting person who's running a large company who's affecting a lot of media and entertainment right now, I think, is Reed Hastings at Netflix. And I think he is kind of a anti-mogul because even though he obviously is extraordinarily important in running that company and is, uh, you know, from what you read is, is, you know, really, um, the heart of the strategy. He's, he's, he's really involved with that. The Netflix has made a lot of excellent moves over a long time, and it, and it make, makes quite a lot of money. And he is non-mogul-like for someone who is going to be able to control quite a lot of the distribution of uh, these movies. Um, there have been articles about him saying things that they didn't do, but they almost did. For example, they almost went into the box business, creating a kind of, um, you know, a, a, a piece of hardware for Netflix, and ended up realizing at the last minute that that was such a dumb idea that they, they really knew nothing about that business and they had to stick to their knitting. Um, he also had a vision of the streaming for Netflix before streaming was even, you know, really, you know, physically available and had that in his mind and knew where he was heading, apparently, through most of his, you know, from the time that they founded the company. And it seems true because if you look at, I've been collecting all the articles and interviews from him since he started and he really did seem to say all those things. So he would be someone that is extraordinarily admirable and is leading his company through incredible amount of changes and seems to um, you know, have a point of view about how he's going to end up at the other end. The other guy that we talk about that we like a lot, but the information is not publicly available, is, is uh, Mike Bloomberg and how his company was structured and what they did to dominate an area of, um, of uh, content and distribution. And um, and went ahead to make you know billions of dollars again. That's not really um, something that we know exactly what they make, but that's we, we believe that they're still incredibly profitable. As far as uh, you know, movie type guys. I mean, mostly they're not that uh, smart about making movies uh, and making money from making movies. So, uh, as nice as they may be, they you know they're not really great business guys. Uh, one uh, thing that. Um you mentioned Reed Hastings, and uh, mm-hmm. I met him a while back, and I asked him, I was like, why don't you focus on social networks or financing movies? And he even told me, he said, I have financed movies through the red envelope, but it didn't seem to make any much sense. 
And he said the key to success was just focus. And it seems like it's the opposite of the growth where you have to expand all these different spaces. He's trying to be as focused as possible. Right. So he's trying to go to scale. Remember when uh, they were just nailing CDs and they opened up um, uh, inventory, the inv- warehouses in different parts of the United States in order to, um, to minimize the amount of time that consumers got they could get their CDs and they could maximize their kind of inventory and they're all, they were always moving around their warehouses to try to figure out what they were doing. And I think that they did that on a very economical basis because it's not, it's not a high-tech type of thing, you know, inventory of CDs. Um, and they did a pick-and-pack kind of situation, which was very efficient, that they could duplicate in, in every place across the country and have kind of similar um, operations. And then as that is, is trending down, you know, he's, he's getting rid of those warehouses that he doesn't need. Um, and so I do think it's totally about focus. Because all these different verticals, side-by-side verticals, don't share any costs. And even though it's a hell of a lot of fun to be, you know, a media guy who does TV and does movies and does books and all that stuff, because it's kind of fun, it doesn't actually optimize either the revenue or, the co- or, or optimize the cost savings. So generally that makes no sense. Um, you know, it, it really doesn't make any sense. So every media area is different, though. So I can make that generalization, but then if you ask me some specifics, and then we can talk about some other areas that might, it might make sense to grow a little bit and to, to go sideways a little bit. Well, this, this naturally dovetails into one of your, the central conceits of the book, which is that the modern media company is completely obsessed by growth. Even though that, that you've shown that growth doesn't tend to improve the, the bottom line most of the time, why, why do you think that there's this obsession? Is this just sort of a reflection of a basic kind of human trait, just to always want more and more and more? Is it, is it ego? Is it greed? Is it selfishness? I have to tell you, I don't know about that, <laughs> or else I'd be, you know, a doctor. So I don't know about the greed and selfishness and stuff. And also the other thing I don't know is about all other industries in the world, you know, in terms of exactly what kind of uh, growth that they do that is that is bad. However, we did do some numbers, and the media business really does have very low returns relative to the S&P. So let's just say that's the average. And it seems like the indicators are that they do these silly purchases. There's also something else going on, of course, which is that right now with the digital um, – platforms taking over many of our media businesses, that absolutely hammers your profitability because uh, it's so easy for anyone to enter in. And even if you had a competitive advantage or had a dominant position in a particular area, other companies can go ahead and enter in fairly easily and cheaply. And so it's kind of, uh, you know, it's adding insult to injury, which is that they weren't in a particularly good position anyway, or they were doing this purchasing without understanding how they could optimize it. And then in addition to that, in areas that they went into, they can't make any money anyhow. So I I don't know about greed. I I know that um, somehow it's rewarded the company or the shareholders reward um, leaders for doing this growth. And, uh, and therefore they continue on to do it. If, if, you know, you keep making a big salary when you buy something, even though it's not profitable, you know, the, the rational response is to keep buying something, even though it's not profitable. So, you know, you've you got to blame the shareholders, uh, in this case, for supporting this kind of um, behavior. Now, uh, you're talking about how 
the internet has made it so easy to create a, a competitor to like let's say uh, a legacy business like the New York Times, mm-hmm. and you know so there's so there's some threats to it. So my question is, is the internet does it create more opportunities or create more threats for uh, a mogul? Um, uh, the internet, the digital business or the digital platforms usually are. Um, threatening to the incumbent and a possibility for the newcomer coming in, okay, the the new entrant, because the incumbent has a lot of um, uh, business and infrastructure which they pay for, which have nothing to do with digital, okay? So if you're just, you know, generically thinking about it that way, it's a threat to the incumbent and easier for the entrant. entrant. However, you know, if the incumbent, like... Um, like Netflix, which is now an incumbent, actually, um, understands how to use their market position to move their consumers from an analog business to a digital business, then they have some sort of advantage over a new entrant. And we've seen that time and time again with people trying to get into their business of rental. Uh, and it's it hasn't been that successful. If you look at Hulu, which is pretty successful in these, as these things go, which only did streaming, they are a fraction of the size of Netflix. And they're now going through a lot of changes and questions. You know, they obviously announced that they're going to be up for sale and they've changed their business model. And, you know, so the question is really, are they going to be able to survive at any, any real scale? I think they'll, they seem to be profitable from, again, what we can see as soon as it's, public it will get a lot more information but um but they're much smaller than um than netflix and they were the they were the new entrant um when uh 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 blockbuster tried to move into this business they they failed and um there's an example of people who were really incumbents in the physical world and literally could not make a change for getting consumers through digital and that's where Netflix uh, sort of beat them and, and was able to use their advantages. So, you know, it, it does, I, I, as much as I love to generalize, because, you know, I'm a professor and I'm a writer and I'm a consultant, we love to do that, there's still, it's still going to be a business-to-business or industry-to-industry kind of analysis. Local uh, content is, is something else that comes up time and again in, in The Curse of the Mogul. And it seems like companies maybe are starting to pick up on this. Uh, I think that probably the biggest one in the public now is AOL's kind of hyper-local uh, content focus that they're rolling out. Do you, what do you think of AOL's approach? Well, um, AOL is trying to create uh, a way to scale local content, which is, which is hard to do. And um, in particular, they're trying to scale news. I um, I also teach at the not only do I teach at Columbia Business School but I teach at Columbia Journalism School and spent about a year doing a lot of research on news and local content and digital content and um, what's really interesting about AOL is that they have people in the field and they are trying to take um, some technology that the that an individual say an individual little digital website couldn't pay for and you know and spread the cost over you know, five or six or a thousand different um, small um, uh, reportorial areas, and they call them patches, so it's called patch.com. Um, and I think it's a decent idea. I think people really do want local information, and um, 
especially having to do with entertainment and um, and politics and that kind of thing. Whether uh, or not AOL can make it cheap enough, they can, and on the plus side, actually drive enough advertising um, is another story. And they don't break out those numbers. It's all part of their whole AOL thing, so I really don't know. But local content is important um, in news for sure. The question is, can you just get enough advertising for that to support it or get someone to pay subscriptions? Now, this this is more of a of a philosophical kind of comment question again. Yeah. But do you do you see this sort of newly emerging kind of focus on the local market in, from the media as, as part of a kind of larger local movement that's going on? You know, most most visibly, maybe like in the local food movement. Are well, people, I think it, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it used to be completely impossible because you just couldn't get to people locally. You couldn't find who they were. The way you could do it was through your newspaper circular, you know, that kind of thing, or these small local newspapers. I mean, the the funniest thing about the word hyperlocal is the fact that these small town newspapers existed, you know, for the last 200 years. So this is just kind of a, a way of um, making that idea into a digital business and being able to find these people. And another way to think about local, of course, is special information. So if you're interested in... Um, in uh, ceramics from the 20th, you know, early 20th century, and it used to be in your town there was maybe one store who sold it, or maybe there were no stores, and there was you know a little uh, group of uh, of uh, collectors. Now you can form a whole group and find this stuff, you know, in a kind of a local or specialized um, website or through uh, through communicating through the internet, and so. I think the internet made all this stuff possible. It made it so much cheaper to enter. So you can have a blog for, um, you know, the, the whole mommy blog thing. It's a bunch of very local women who um, are publishing and try to sell advertising and have a business based on on some on very local information, typically or very specialized information. So yeah, I mean, local food is I think not really related to local media. I just, uh, I just think uh, they're getting more publicity. I think there was, again, I always think there was always local food that was produced. It's just that no one, no one who was in the media or who who wasn't living in that little town knew about it. Now, a question. Now, we we've seen that uh, so we have film, TV, you know, journalism. It's all these different areas where people are investing money. Some other people are making it. I was wondering, you know, of all these different options, if just looking as an investor. What do you think is the smartest investment if someone had to put money in any part of uh, the media? Well, um, I'm not a big believer in investing in the media because I work in it. And so I know how hard it is to make you know superior profits in the media. The companies that um, are doing really well and are well run are still kind of the blue chips. And even though their stock prices are getting hammered, you know, Google... It, is is very interesting and still has a lot to offer even though you know everyone's criticizing them about the Facebook situation um, and they've you know they've done very well um, uh, other public companies to invest that are interesting I think again um, Netflix is very interesting and seems to do very well but you know all these things are risky um, the uh, TV businesses or the you know movie businesses, I wouldn't I wouldn't put a, any money in that. I mean they're just hit driven and on a long run you know long run basis, 
I don't think they're going to deliver anything. I mean, McGraw-Hill, which we talked about in the book only a few years ago, which has a really steady return, you know, doing steady returns for a conglomerate in the media business is actually under a lot of stress right now. So um, I always find it hilarious when um, uh, when uh, companies take over media companies and they bring them private and they think that they can, you know, can fix them, and I think they can't. I think it's just they're, they're really hard and they're becoming – uh, even harder to run and make a lot of money on. So we've noticed uh, how there's a big trend in user-generated content. Almost more people are consuming that than, than even the professional, you know, you know, videos. And you've seen like the difference between uh, I think a uh, strategy between a, a Facebook and a uh, and a and a MySpace. Well, Facebook is very much it's like a platform and it, it facilitates interaction and you know, creation of content. Then on the other end, you have uh, MySpace, which was kind of a platform, but also was almost like a content producer. And it seemed to, uh, when going against Facebook, Facebook had the advantage overall. Right. I mean, it looks like that what Facebook decided to do is to be an operating system, um, kind of like what Microsoft did and where Microsoft really makes all its money. And, um, and, and MySpace did not have that kind of sophisticated approach to the software. So, um, so you're right. So, I mean, the fact that Facebook, the Facebook connecting, is an example of a brilliant use of Facebook that in that that outside that you know over a million companies that have consumers who register find it much easier to use Facebook Connect um, and to increase the number of people who register by giving them that option, which means that they become beholden or really connected into Facebook and um, they could become part of this network. And so there's this network's effects of, you know, being in Facebook, participating in Facebook, having to have a Facebook page, um, getting information about the users from Facebook, and that's that's brilliant. And I think um, depending on how Facebook ends up financially, you know, that might be a good place to invest. But but you notice, I did say Google is a good place, but Google also has um, has um, two uh, two kinds of stock. You know, they have a the uh, owner stock and they have the public stock. And so that's the other thing you have to realize if you're going to invest is that a lot of these media companies um, have decided to reserve the, um, the financial control for the original owners and give the public a much, uh, a, a very small, if, if not at all, any kind of control. I mean, if you look at Rupert Murdoch and News Corp, you know, for all the screaming and yelling about, you know, Rupert Murdoch and all the terrible things he did and the felonies and all that kind of stuff, and I agree that, that you know, that uh, the phone hacking thing has to be a felony, and, and it had to everyone had to know about it. But who the heck is controlling the company still? It's Rupert Murdoch. He has forty percent, and his family has another thirty percent of the of the controlling stock. So remember, in a recent article, when a reporter asked, "Are you going to be?" or the Congress asked, "Are you going to be stepping down?" And he's like, "No, why should I?" And no one can make him. It's not illegal for him to be owning the stock. So. Um, so I got off the track here because I was trying to combine the last question. Yeah, no, it's, that's no, no problem. Uh, one thing back to Facebook, which is kind of interesting, focusing on the game industry. Uh, Facebook created a whole new form. I mean, I would say more efficient. There is other uh, forms of social networks. And uh, Zynga and these uh, casual gaming companies, in a certain way, has disrupted a lot of the console game market. Yes. And you have these freemium models of uh, microtransactions, and 
for whatever reason, you know, obviously with Facebook, you know, it's very popular. And also, you, we look at our economy. A lot of people are not willing to put fifty dollars down on a uh, console game versus playing a casual game that's free. And occasionally, they could do a small transaction to buy a digital good. What are your thoughts on the actual console games losing out to like a very like free, easy to play uh, game business? I mean, they are two different distinct um, uh, industries or two different distinct markets. I mean, in it, for a very long time, most casual games were uh, uh, played by women, and usually, on average, older women. And so that business um, was different from the games where you had to have some more skill and you use the console, or even that you did the, um, you know, the uh, 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 massive, uh, massive uh, games with, you know, what was it World of World Warcraft. of Warcraft, right? Where um, that's online, but it's it, it takes a lot to you have to pay a subscription fee, obviously, and it takes a lot of skill to to advance. Um, and I think that um, the Zingas of this world are completely dependent on Facebook, and their profitability is dependent on Facebook. And so um, it's they know that, and they you know I think they do everything, including you know get up early in the morning and make breakfast for the people at Facebook so that they mm-hmm. won't. Screw, screw around with them, but it is a kind of a risky situation knowing exactly what your revenue is going to be. I mean, look at what happened when Google um, changed its algorithm, and a bunch of companies that had depended on a kind of Google algorithm suddenly weren't getting the traffic that they wanted. But anyway, back to back to console. Console games have been suffering. If you look at the profitability in that business, it's been really suffering, and um, it will obviously, I don't think it'll go away, but I do think it's going to, to rebalance itself and um, you know, somehow the pricing will change and all that, and they'll they'll appeal to a particular kind of segment. They're busy trying to you know do uh, real time and online things with the fifty dollar purchase of the game. Um, it will it's still going to be you know a, a kind of technology which you can't imitate with Zynga, a Zynga game because of the you know how much how fat it is and how much time it takes and space it takes. But you know the, the, it's really interesting how Zynga and the Castro games have been developing. Um, and, you know, they seem to be making money because they don't have a lot of expenses. And if they catch on as a hit, then they're, they really do have a huge amount of uh, operating profit for every single person that, that participates. But console games are probably not going to go away. I know a lot of people have been striking to death now uh, for console gaming. And like you said, they're two distinct uh, businesses, really. And I think it's yeah. premature to say that that the Xbox sure. and the Sony I mean, look and PlayStation are going bye Right. When we came in, um, it, it actually wasn't great um, uh, technology. It was actually using older technology, but it, it was a brilliant idea about how they used the controller. And... I think you know. I think folks in the in that gaming business are very very creative, and it'll be interesting to see how they you know go to the next thing, which is going to be important. But yeah, I don't think it'll go away at least you know anytime soon. Um, ultimately, it might you know just the way that uh, CDs may go away if streaming is the only way that you, can, you get movies or the, mo- or the most popular way to get movies. So it may become a smaller and specialized business, but um, I don't think it'll be. Uh, in the next five years or so, I think that some of these companies are going to really figure out how to make it work. And going going back to the whole notion of growth by mergers and acquisitions uh, for a moment here, you know, I mean, it's a truism that nothing nothing lasts forever. 
And it, it seems that these companies are going to get so big that, that they're either going to crumble under their own weight or, or the shareholders are going to you know, put a stop to this and the companies are going to have to find a new way to, to earn revenue and, and you know, exp- not necessarily expand the business but evolve the business other than uh, mergers and acquisitions. I mean, how, how long do you think can this really go on? It seems that something's got to give eventually. What, what's the straw that's going to break the camel's back as far as these large kind of big behemoth media companies are concerned? I think that people are, uh, or shareholders are insisting that the companies um, break up somewhat so that they can capture the value of the individual parts of the company. But it does seem to be a, um, to go on some years, companies buy other companies, and some years they uh, divest of these companies. And so I'm really not a good prognosticator on that. I mean, again, McGraw-Hill, an example of a good, uh, pretty well-run um uh, uh, conglomerate in the media business, and now it's under a lot of pressure to break itself up and to um, to get rid of the uh, less uh, profitable arm of the business, you know, the, which is the textbook area. And I do think that the market, you know, runs in in cycles, hot and cold, on whether they should people should companies should buy other companies or divest of them. I mean, if you look at H- HP in a different industry, right? They spent a lot of money buying a uh, compact and, and buying other uh, consumer businesses. And they just announced uh, very recently that they want to um, uh, the best of the consumer businesses and keep business to business and consumer businesses separate. So um, I think that it almost never makes sense to buy a business, which is very different from yours, except that once you're in that arena, you, you, you have the cards that you dealt and you won't divest if you can't make your value back, you know, or you do better when you just keep running the business the way it is. So, again, every every media conglomerate is different, but um, it does seem like the large larger conglomerates, you know, aren't um, as prevalent as they were. But then we just talked about Comcast, NBCU, you know, yeah, <laughs> which is seems to be uh, going against the grain of what I just said. There's a uh, company. Uh I'm not sure how successful it is. It seems like it's successful. It's uh, called Alloy Entertainment. Um, they focus Alloy? on uh, Alloy Entertainment. Yeah, sure, sure. They focus mm-hmm. on very you know, young female uh, demographic for publishing mm-hmm. and also uh, TV and film. And they kind of reverse engineer IP to go through their film and TV channel. Like, mm-hmm. I was wondering. I don't know if it's successful, but if, is there examples where like that kind of diversifying is there some type of synergy to it where it works with within the company that it actually adds value versus distract, you know, the, from their better, greater goals. Yeah, I mean, Alloy is interesting, and they're privately held, right? They're not They're not a public company, I don't think. Uh, yeah, they're privately held. I think they're recently required for about $100 million. I'm not sure exactly. Yeah. I mean, Alloy is an interesting business. I mean, they did editorial content for years and years and years. I mean, since when I was a young person, um, the, the original guys came from the book business. And um, I don't know how well they're... Um, their uh, their merchandise and stuff is going, but I think the content, uh, thinking about content for young women and teenagers, teenage girls and stuff, um, and then translating that into movies and TV, once you've done books and book series, isn't that different. I just, being a content, uh, you know, provider or or trying to make your money on content production, you know, being a, being a studio type of company or a book package as they used to be is is hit and miss also 
And I think when they went into these other businesses, they were trying to get a more steady income. So, um, but you know, knowing what works for women, young women in books, and then trying to decide whether that works on TV, that that's not so crazy. It seems to me that that's that's fairly related. Doing all the production yourself uh, for both things, that I that I don't think is that profitable. I mean, in in the old days when they did books, they didn't publish their own books. They sold the ideas, or they did a joint venture with book publishers. And so they really did concentrate on what they knew best, which was the which was the um, the creative, and uh, and they didn't they didn't try to control the other stuff. So uh, what their current strategy is, I, I don't I don't know if that's going to make so much sense, but you know they, they're privately held, so we'll never know. Um, and then the question you had is, does this ever make sense? Is that what you're? Your yeah, question? my question is, uh, does it? Because it, I mean, does it make sense ever to diversify as a media company? And go, I have TV, but I also have, you know, like, like, say, like, I, I produce TV, but also have like a book publisher, whatever combination. Yeah. Is there so ever like a time Alloy, where that adds yeah. value? Yeah, so Alloy, it seemed to have made sense. You know, in retrospect, that that they had a special information. And let's look at Martha Stewart as an example of somebody that had this special knowledge about um, design and taste making and cooking and that kind of thing. And then she went ahead and she did a lot of other businesses that seemed to be related. So I think that for a while, I mean, let's put aside the way she financed the business and, and basically how she stole money from the public by raising tons of money that she never used for any reason. You know, she had like 80% cash before the, the business kind of went to hell. But, but um, her knowledge about cooking and um, and recipes and that kind of thing and tea was used across all these different platforms as content and creative, and she managed to do very nicely when she was essentially selling the the knowledge and the content to other distribution companies. So she um, she first had her magazine was owned by Time Inc. And then, you know, she did a bunch of things and she got back the idea for the magazine and then launched it on her own. But she could have done extremely well personally um, if she had, you know, continued to sell her ideas and products through other companies. Oprah Winfrey is another example. So Oprah Winfrey's magazines are published by Hearst and her TV show used to be produced by King World or distributed by them. And then she did books by somebody else and so forth. And she understood that the means of production she didn't have scale she had the ideas and they had the scale and that was where it was making sense to think that you're uh, starting a book company or starting an internet company and it's to scale and you can you know produce something cheaper and make enough money usually doesn't make a lot of sense but Martha Stewart is an example of you know her brand um, name being able to be used to make money in a lot of different platforms as we kind of start to wrap this up, I'd like to ask you to take a look, to compare for us, if you could, today's media moguls against uh, the old Hollywood moguls, both in terms of, uh, you know, not, not just personality, but the challenges that they face and how they dealt with it. It seems to me almost like the, uh, the modern moguls have more to do with maybe like the, almost like the old robber barons and the people who ran the railroad and giant like steel monopolies than with people like Louis Mayer and Harry Cohn? Why? 
<laughs> Why do you think they have more in common with Robert Barron's? What aspect of Robert Barron's do you think that they Well, in, in terms of the, the, the size and, and kind of scope and influence that their companies have, the, the old Hollywood companies, Warner Brothers is really just Warner Brothers, and they made movies and maybe they produced radio and maybe television later on. But these, these new companies today have so much reach, and they reach so many people, not just through movies and radio and TV, but through the internet and publishing and cable distribution and books and music. And the, the companies just seem so much bigger, and there seems to be so much more pressure put on the, the people who run them that, that they, they face challenges that, that um, like I mentioned, Louis Mayer and Harry Cohn couldn't even have dreamed of having to deal with. Right. Well, those guys actually were, I mean, those guys, the, the business was never very good for them either. I mean, they had big personalities and they, they had a lot of publicity, but the returns uh, for their businesses typically weren't that great after they stopped having a monopoly on, uh, on making movies, you know, in, in movie distribution. But that being aside, um, I think what's going on in media is that in order to make any money at all, you have to take your creative content and, and run it across all these platforms. Remember that platforms don't really, um, are really uh, narrow, and they're smaller than they, than they used to be, and the amount of money you can make per platform is much smaller. So if you have a creative idea, the number of books that you're going to sell for that book that you publish is going to be a lot smaller than it was, say, 20 years ago. And in order to get any kind of return on your investment, you're going to have to try to exploit that um, creative content in a lot of different, um, across a lot of different platforms. So you make, you, you have a lot more costs associated with those platforms and you have a lower revenue per platform. So I do think there's a lot of pressure on. As far as being robber barons or something, I mean, that I don't think is a reasonable comparison. Um, the biggest dominating companies in media are companies like uh, Google or let's say Facebook might be able to dominate media. But on the other hand, there's so many alternatives, except for search. There's so many alternatives for getting to the public. It's so easy to start a media company, to start an internet business, that you just don't have the kind of control um, or the domination that, let's say, a robber baron had. That's why they were called a robber baron, because they, they had a special resource, they had the oil or they had the mineral, and they, you know, they exploited it and they wouldn't let anybody else in. That's just not the case now. It's just it's not possible. Um, and so as much as, um, you know, Google is, is doing that, they're the exception in terms of their ability to control. And now that Facebook is coming on the scene, you know, a lot of people are predicting that, that Google is going to lose its grip on search as well because of the way people do search. So um, I think there's a lot of pressure on individuals in the business because you have to have expertise across all these platforms and it's not possible. But I don't think that um, companies are going to be making money, nor are they going to be able to dominate any areas. So it's, it's, it's actually a sad day for companies and it's a really good day for consumers because they have so much choice. That's great. So um, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Of course. And uh, if there's any, you know, any uh, new, uh, you know, writing, any new projects you're involved with, you know, feel free if to mention them if there's something that's coming up. Yes. Well, we just published a book called um, The Story So Far, um, uh, What We Know About the Business of Digital Journalism. 
And I'm a co-author of that book. Um, it's for sale on Amazon and both. Uh, it was published by the Columbia University Press, but it's also uh, an e-book. And um, this was uh, because I work for the journalism school as well, and we want our students to have jobs when they get out. <laughs> and all of them are working for journalism companies. So, uh, I'm sorry, I was working for digital-type companies, and we want to be able to tell them, you know, where's a good place to work and um, who's making any money and why or why not. So that was just published uh, in May. And um, thank you for the opportunity to plug that. I appreciate it. Great. Well, um, it was a pleasure, and uh, you have a great day. Okay, thank you. Thanks. And again, everybody, that's Ava C. with The Curse of the Mogul. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hollywood 2.0. Please check out PeterCats.net. It's K-A-T-Z. To find out more information about myself. And also, follow me at Twitter, PeterCats, the number one. And you can find me at richsilverman.com. But I also encourage everybody to check out goberserk.com. That's G-O-B-Z-R-K.com. That is the hub site for the transmedia experience that I'm writing that is currently underway.